Taken from uh, an album with uh, the very same uh, title, I'm the one, Roberta Flack, coming through on uh, Jet Set Breakfast. And this, in fact, a little birdie tells me, was uh, the favorite song of uh, uh, Mapitla Mohapi, one of his favorite artists of all time. But a lady who's uh, far more well-versed on the life and times of uh, Mapitla is none other than Zikona uh, Valela, who's joining me on the line now. And she's a historian and author. She uh, wrote the book, Now You Know how Mapetla died, the story of the black consciousness Mataya. Good morning to you. How are you doing, Zikona? I'm fine, thanks, Bridget. Thank you for having me and good morning to all your listeners. Great stuff. I mean, this is such an intriguing uh, story and, and a name that a lot of South Africans are not synonymous with. But yet again, this is why we also appreciate the efforts of researchers and historians such as yourself who go out there and bring us these stories and bring us these names um, and bring the lives of, of you know, um, of these people to light. Um, why is it so important for you to, to embark on this kind of work? Um, you know, I think I'd firstly say that I wouldn't wish this kind of uh, project on anyone Mm. um, because I think often we, um, I think when you're the first person to write about someone who has kind of been missing Mm. from the archive for so long, um, I mean, this man was 28 when he was killed in detention Mm. on the 5th of August, 1976. It's been, um, this year will mark 46 years since that Mm. event. Um, so there's a lot missing about his life, um, especially from his perspective, because mm. he's not here to tell his own story. Mm. And you also have, you know, people that are, you know, that are not going to be open to speaking with you because you, you know, the first project, the first book about anyone, the first documentary, mm. and the first conversation is often the first time that people are then compelled to recall. Mm. And in this instance, you are recalling something that is deeply painful, mm. um, that altered lives forever. Mabetla has two, has two daughters, mm. uh, both of whom were between two and seven months when he was killed. Mm-hmm. So, and today they are in their 40s, they are children of their own. Um, and so there's been a life lived, uh, almost a generation is, mm. called, uh, is without this person and his influence and mm. his love, you know, in terms of the physical world that we are living through right now. So um, so I think it, it, it becomes very hard to piece together, the, you know, uh, the story because of the whole, of, of, of this challenge um, of people not being quite yet ready to speak with you. Mm. Um, but it's great when it finally is out because I think it also then, you know, create, it starts a conversation because mm. I think that matters too. Mm. Um, because then it allows for, uh, for for more work to be built on what is already there. Mm. Um, and, you know, in terms of this book for me, I wanted, it was a challenge for me. Is it possible to, um, to piece together the story? Is it possible for us to bring into focus um, the stories of the lesser known heroes? Yeah. Because right now in our history, we tend to focus a lot on 
a particular type of figure, the figure of Nelson Mandela, yes. which I have absolutely no problem with because I think it's great that we have a very rich literature around that figure. Mm. But you don't get the first president of the Republic of South Africa without people like Mabetla who shift history of towards course. that moment. So it was important to me that we bring into focus this work that was going on because people like Mabetla were working and building a movement, building solidarity, while many people were not in the country because they were in exile or they mm. were incarcerated far away from their political bases and their political and their organizational kind of hubs. So people mm. like Mabetla kept the fires burning. So it's important that we know him and we know his family. And another thing I'd like to add is, you know, you don't get the story without the woman who kept yes. her quest for justice alive. So for me to tell the story is to also bring into focus the contribution that uh, his widow, Umama Unoshe Mohapi Mbechu, in terms of, you know, demanding that justice be served and the cost that that came with. Mm. So, yeah, so I think for me, so the, so the book does different types of things to highlight the contribution of Mabetla, yeah. to highlight the quest for justice by the by women in his life. Um, and to also just say to people, look, there's so many stories that are yet to be told. There's so much that is concealed. Mm. And we need to all work together to do that digging yeah. towards completing the tapestry of our history. And what I get, uh, you, you know, just uh, from uh, the, the opening conversations, Ikona, is the sense of responsibility also in telling this kind of story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you are the, the historian or the author, uh, you, you literally become the, the first point of, of archiving that, that history, of making sure mm. that it lives on beyond just, uh, you, you know, the immediate connections to the person. And there's a great responsibility in that, in not only telling the story accurately, uh, mm. but also, uh, you know, sensitively, because there are sensitivities, as you, you, you've pointed out, and, and also at the same time not sanitizing, um, you know, the person's history and the person's contribution and the impact and the effect that that had, not just on the immediate, but also um, on the greater society and the greater movement at large. Absolutely, Bridget, because I think, you know, when being a historian, being anybody who kind of does this work of archiving or bringing to the fore um, various stories, you kind of join, I would say, you join an elite circle mm. of people who decide what is told and what is not. Yes. Um, and I think as a country that is still kind of reckoning with our past, we have a responsibility to be very ethical when it comes to you know those decisions because many stories need to be told. Mm. Uh, the reality is that we are product of a very painful past. Mm. And to not say anything, to simply, you know, um, you know, use the rainbow nation type of narrative and the 1994 euphoria to eclipse this pain does a great deal of injustice to people who are still missing that closure. Mm. Because the other reality is that, you know, so many people do not know what happened to their loved ones. And mm. um, one of the miracles, I think, of this book was that, you know, um, Mabetla's widow, Mamnoshe, you know, told me um, that it was in reading the book mm. that she finally found out why her husband was arrested in the first place. Oh, wow. Um, 
So, which is something I had no idea of. And funny enough, we are having this conversation on Good Friday on the 15th of April, mm. um, which uh, was also very significant to Mamnoshe because 15th of April was when the TRC opened and she opened the TRC with her testimony oh. of her husband's death in detention. So you have those kinds of things aligning and, um, um, but also more than anything, you know, you, you, you realize, I think for me, it reinforces the fact that there's so much work to be done. There's so much honest work that needs to be done because I think if we are to truly begin a quest of healing and to truly uh, begin that work of breaking with the past, mm. we need to know the past we are breaking with. And this is where we come in as historians to tell that 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 part of our journey as a country and mm. um, towards really saying, hey, you know what, we are closing this chapter. And to also compel the state, because right now, as this book is coming out and many books like it are coming out, many inquests are reopening mm. and many investigations are kind of underway and people are attempting to really get to the bottom of what happened mm. and to hopefully find justice. Mm. or the victims of the carceral system of apartheid and just the system in general. Yeah. So books like this, documentaries, films, anything that really wants to think about our past are so important to helping us, to, to guiding us towards those answers that are missing for families like the Mojave family who still don't know who murdered mm. their father and husband, who still don't have closure because... Even to this day, the official record is no one can be held responsible for mm. this man's death. Wow. And knowing what we know about apartheid today, there is someone responsible, and we need to get to the bottom of who those people are for oh. the sake of closure. Absolutely. Um, and for the sake of, of, of that healing that, that we need as a collective also, uh, you know, that 94 uh, euphoria you speak of that eclipsed the pain and the hurt, it's really something that we do need to get to the crux of. It's we, You really do need to drill down to this is how I was hurt. This is, the, you know, the mm-hmm. personalized injustice, those stories, those individual stories, the acts that were perpetrated to specific families. Those mm. need to be vocalized, as Ian Levinson says, call a thing a thing. And that's the only way you are able to then move past it. That's the only way you are then even able as a collective society of those who inflicted pain. Even in the generations past, are you able to pay reparation, not in a, in a tangible way, but just to say, I'm sorry, but you know what you're saying you're sorry for? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, but of course, you know, there's there's a lot of tensions in this country that we that we're yet to even admit to because I mean, you think about the fact that because we have to face up to the reality that not a lot of people were prepared to, to kind of transition, you mm. know. Mm. So that's another thing about the difficulty of getting to the truth. Mm. Because we are still living among people who believe very strongly in the project of the National Party mm. and do not see anything wrong with um, with what happened, and therefore they shield each other. Mm. You know, we had the pre- the last president of the apartheid system saying uh, that apartheid was not a crime against humanity mm. until very recently when he when he had died. Yeah. Um, 
So we also are dealing with those kinds of difficulties. But also one of the things that I wanted to do in the book mm. um, was to also pay, bring um, attention to the kinds of betrayals mm. um, uh, 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 that comrades of Mabeta feel with the settlement. Yes. Because I think oftentimes, you know, whenever the conversation, the possible conversations around selling out come up, Mm. The response is often one of dismissal. Oh, these people did not live through this system. Mm. So they are just saying things. You know, they don't know what they're talking about. Mm. So what you find in the book is, you know, um, interviews with people who are, who are recruited by Mabetla Entrustas or who worked with him in the Black Consciousness Movement, also expressing what we fought for, we don't see the fruits of what we fought for. Mm. We don't see the results of our sacrifice. Mm. And part of that is because of these different kinds of negotiations and, and, and compromises that lead us to the kind of dispensation that we are living through right now. Mm. So I think it was important and also kind of, you know, thinking about this pain um, of losing someone at such a young age Mm. that this person being my better. It's also important to kind of think about the people that are surviving through that pain mm. and how they see, you know, the, the dispensation and the work. And I think, because I think that will compel us mm. to maybe, you know, uh, reinvigorate a new conversation towards maybe working out different types of terms um, that are reflective of the huge sacrifice that many people made, people like Mabetla, and even those that lived, that survived it. Mm. Um, people like Winnie Mandela, people like, um, you know, uh, 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 the, the, the Shushulus, people like the Sobukes, um, who survived uh, the era mm. into 1994, at least the families of those people. Um, so I think one of that, that's one of the functions also of the book, mm. um, in addition to also bringing into focus events that we don't often talk about as well, you know, yeah. freely more. That era in the 70s is kind of concealed mm. in a lot of Eurasia. Um, mm. And an example I'm going to give is um, apparently, you know, there was information that Mabetla recruited Bridget Mabanja into the ANC, mm. which, is a, which is actually an inaccuracy mm. um, that I deal with in the book. And that's Part of the problem of our history, even to this day, where it is co-opted mm. from the organizations that actually did the work. Um, and also, in, 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 in a, in a, and it is an erasure that is ex- in expense of another person. Mm. Because in the book, I then highlight that, no, Ambassador Mabandla was recruited by somebody else. Mm. And the thing about misinformation and distortion here is that it then erases another person. And so it's important that we are careful um, about what we say about our history. We are careful that our agendas of trying to co-opt things don't then end up, you know, concealing another truth and yeah. concealing another person's contribution because of clout, as the kids say. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Zakona, as you speak uh, and as we speak about institutionalized memory, which is always a a recurring theme and the erosion or distortion of, of histories and legacies, I wonder there is no one singular um, you know, approach or one sing or a guideline that one could use and embark to to sort of conscientize ourselves as as individuals or society or even to go about 
um, correcting some of, of those wrongs and re-editing some of those pages ourselves. Um, there always seems to be some kind of tug and pull, you know, just amongst ourselves even as, as, as you know, the black community, as black people. It, the conversation and the debate becomes if you were not in part uh, somehow prominent within the liberation movement, um, and this is a trend across Africa, you know, across uh, most countries that had to fight for their freedom. If you were not somehow in part of the victorious liberation movement, then you get erased. And what do we then do to balance those scales? What do we then do to give those people who contributed their prominence and their moment in the sun alongside, you know, the liberation leaders that we might know from the dominant movements? Um, I would say in South Africa, um, the liberation movement is not the African National Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, the African National Congress is part of the liber. It's one part. It's part of the whole, mm. and that is the thing that we tend to miss. That at least the mainstream history tends to miss. It wants to center a movement, a mm. particular type of movement, when there are po- when there are points in our history where it is not prominent. Yeah. Um. So you find so 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 it's important when we write about the liberation movement to consider seriously that there are so many other organizations that exist alongside perhaps in this instance one of the movements that emerges mm. as a political organization that leads the country into a new order. Mm. Um and that is how we we begin to resolve this, uh, this, this the, the gaps that mm. exist because the reality is that after 1960, right, we mm. see this almost, you know, um, quiet kind of, uh, uh, or people call it like a silence or a lull mm. because now open air politics is not happening. The movements have gone underground, mm. the PAC and the ANC in particular. Mm. And then in the 70s, late 60s, you have Faso emerge. And then the black consciousness movement has its own decade in the 70s mm. that reinvigorates uh, political um, activity. I mean, we are having this conversation on the 50th anniversary of the Turflip testimony, which is the speech Uncle Bozadiro gave mm. uh, on graduation day on 29th April 1972. And that led to expulsion of students at Turflip. And those students went in and taught in Soweto. And this is why Biro then teaches at Morris Isaacson High School. Mm. And that influences another layer of students, people like Fiat Mashinini, who then become leaders of the 1976 students' protest movement, mm. right? So, it's in, so when we tell the story, so when, so when you hear those kinds of things, you realize that, wow, the liberation movement with each layer that maybe gets repressed mm. and then has to go underground, or has to go into exile, another layer emerged mm. to pick up where these other movements that were now restricted left off. Yeah. And it's important to recognize that every time the apartheid system tried to kill a movement, mm. there was always a layer to pick up where, there, where 
that point where the repression kind of took place. Yes. So as, as, as Vico says, I mean, you can kill a person, but you can never kill ideas. Right. And the thing about the liberation movement, the liberation cause is that it was an idea. This thing of freedom was an idea and it was constantly taken up. Um, And that is where the triumph lies, where Mm. where these guys, these white supremacist policy makers like your Fervus, like your P.W. Butters, like your Kruger, where they tried to, to, or Fosters rather, Mm. when they tried to kill people, eliminate people, and repress them, and exile them, and banish them. There was always someone who held on to the idea of freedom and the urgency to take it up mm-hmm. um, towards where we are now. And, and, and we have a responsibility to also then take it further because there's so much that is yet to be fulfilled um, in terms of what people fought for. Yeah. So that is how we resolve the issue of erasure. When we look outside of partisanship, when we look outside of personality, to, because then we are able to see the other faces that have mm. been missing for so long in our archive or that have been disappeared for so long or mm. ignored or even deliberately like just not recognized for the work and the sacrifice that they have contributed. Yeah. Zakana, I mean, I think you and I could uh, speak forever in a day. Um, But as I let you go, what was for you, uh, perhaps, I don't know, uh, you know, a point of surprise when when uh, doing your research and unearthing the story of uh, Mapetla? Did you have a moment of even perhaps a reflection of sorts that that you came to during this entire process? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, there are many, Bridget, but I think one I would like to maybe highlight is, you know, the inquest opened 45 years ago on the 31st of January 1977 mm. at the Magistrate Court uh, in, King, in King Williamstown. I'm actually home right now. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I called the, the, um, the Magistrate Court requesting documents mm. to see... Um, you know, just to read through some documents and and they were like, you know, we don't have these things because the magistrate court documents um, as it relates to inquests and judgments don't get kept beyond 10 years. Oh. So 10 years after 1977 is 1987. Mm. Still during a birth date where stories like this are of no significance. Mm. But you have Mam Noshe who does not give up. Mm. And and refuses to accept what the what the courts are saying, and what the state is saying to the courts about her husband. Mm. She takes this case further in the form of a civil claim in 1979 at the Grandstown High Court, mm. which is now Makanda. And the thing about those documents is that they are recorded and they stay. So one of the things that will always remain with me when it comes to this work is that had it not been for this woman's insistence. Mm. We would not even have a shred of evidence about his last, about this man's last movements after his arrest, and mm. um, the ways in which the police concealed this, uh, the truth around uh, his death. Mm. So we have at least a, a document that exists uh, that I was fortunate enough to actually uh, find, and in addition to that, a pathology report that I found that they didn't even know existed, the family didn't know existed. Mm. So 
those kinds of things will always remain with me and always remind me that there's so much more work that needs to be done. Mm. Um, and there's so many more stories that need to be told and we have work to do as historians, especially as black historians. And that our government needs to invest mm. in funding people towards getting to the bottom of this work because these things are costly, right? Yeah. Um, and that's why we see the imbalance in our bookstores because mm. also writing is a privilege. Yeah. That's the reality. It's an economic privilege. And so if we are serious about correcting wrongs, if we are serious about honoring our heroes, then we have work to do to put in, put our, the government needs to put its money where its mouth is yeah. and fund people and fund projects towards unpacking all this history. And perhaps at this point, as we leave it off, a point for consideration uh, for the Apartheid Museum and uh, its uh, executive board and, of course, uh, its founding model as we move into history is uh, to identify people like Zikona uh, and other historians, independent historians and authors out there and incorporate some of these works, uh, adapt some of these works into the channels of the Apartheid Museum and utilize these resources and these skills because I'm pretty sure, as you've just heard from uh, Zikona's uh, closing remarks, that writing literally is an exercise, uh, you know, that, that requires, I use leisure in some type of way because it requires resource. Um, and and maybe there are projects that are halfway through, projects that are a quarter way through. The research has been done. People have labored and labored for years uh, on their own time, you know, in their own private moments. And all they need now is is that that finishing touch, that finishing push, that 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 intervention by a government department or a, you know, an organization like the Apartheid Museum to say, what do you have? Is it verified? Um, you know, is it triple checked, double checked? Uh, bring it here. Let us bind it. Let us print it. Let us digitize it. Let us put it. Let us keep it. Let us archive it. You've done the work, the labor. Let us take over now. Because I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people like yourself who've, uh, you know, embarked on these journeys. And it's just that mm. final element to get the product from sitting in their studios um, into the, the eyes of South African society. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the time, Zikona. Much appreciated. That was a historian and author, Zikona uh, Valela. And of course, uh, we are fast approaching the, the last few moments of the show. We're going to take a, a music offering and then we come back and we pay tribute to Ray Peary. There is an exhibition that has opened at the, or is going to open rather, at the Mbombela Gallery in Nalspreit on the 27th of May. And it's a reflection of his life and his music. And we'll touch base with uh, Mongani uh, Madondo to find out more about uh, what went into that tribute um, and what we can expect.